0: This week on the Back Table Podcast. And I think that's the way of the future, Sabina, because quite frankly, you and I, when we talk about critical limb ischemia, you and I have a lot more in common, even though I'm a cardiologist and, and, and you are a radiologist, we have a lot more in common when it comes to treatment of patients with critical limb ischemia. We both speak the same language. And what's interesting to me is uh, the, I'm realizing more and more that uh, these lines between specialties, surgery, radiology, cardiology, are becoming more blurred. We're becoming more unified when it comes to the treatment of critical limb ischemia.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things IR and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. With over 500,000 patients treated globally, Impact Admiral Drug-Coded Balloon is the market-leading DCB for treatment of femoral popliteal disease. Learn more about how Impact Admiral DCB can affect reintervention rates for patients with PAD by visiting medtronic.com slash five-year DCB. Have you guys heard the International Symposium on Endovascular Therapy, otherwise known as ISET? has moved their 2021
0: conference from January to May 9th through May 11th. We're excited to head to Hollywood, Florida for their 33rd annual meeting and looking forward to the live cases, late-breaking data, and connecting with multidisciplinary faculty. We're even more excited to offer Backtable listeners a discount to attend. You can register at iset.org, that's I-S-E-T dot org, with discount code BACKTABLE to save 15% on the tuition. Enjoy.
1: This is Sabine Dond as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, interventional cardiologist, Dr. Fadi Saab, coming to us from Advanced Cardiac and Vascular Center in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Welcome, Fadi. Thank you, Sabine. Glad to be on the show. Absolutely. So, you know, Fadi, you're, you're known as a legend in the field of limb ischemia. How did, how did you end up being there and, and becoming one of today's leaders about this topic? Well, that's, that's very kind of you Sabine that, that, to describe me that way. You know, we, we all, we
0: all start within our fields because we are passionate about it. We like it. And like a lot of our colleagues and, and our friends, I started in the fields, field of cardiology and, and ultimately interventional cardi- cardiology, because I wanted to make a difference in our patients' lives. And what was interesting when, when I finished my training, I did my traditional cardiology and endovascular training, I was very interested in, in research to a great deal, great extent. And one of the fields that grabbed my attention was peripheral vascular disease, particularly critical limb ischemia. And what was very intriguing to me is the lack of information and the lack of data within that field. We really don't know much in terms of clinical aspects, in terms of medical management, in terms of even interventional management and follow up for a lot of those patients. And a lot of people saw that as a source of frustration when it, when it came to tackling and dealing with some of those complicated and challenging clinical scenarios. And I saw how much of a bad influence and, and a huge impact it has on patients. So I, I found myself really migrating and, and gravitating toward the field from a research perspective because I wanted to try to make a difference, not not to you know, make it sound like a cliche, but I wanted to make a difference. And part of me enjoyed the challenge. Now, I will be lying if I say to you that I enjoy the challenge on a daily basis because like everybody else, I have good days and bad days. Uh, but it really emphasized my original belief that we really have to do a lot of work within the field to improve our understanding and make a difference and make an impact on patients' lives.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, that, that's great. I mean, when when did you start the uh, Advanced Cardiac and Vascular Center? How, how long have you been there out in Michigan?
0: So we, I've been in practice for more than 10 years right now. And when I first joined in my previous career, I, I joined the hospital and we really focused on peripheral vascular disease and critical limb ischemia. And uh, the, the current environment within healthcare delivery has been shifting and changing, I would say, over the last uh, three to four years. And two years ago, myself and my partner and a few of us uh, came together and we ultimately realized that we really, as physicians that are passionate about critical limb ischemia. Uh, we have an opportunity to build a true critical limb ischemia center that's uh, built around the needs of our patients. So two years ago, we came together and uh, we we made a leap of faith to, to, we knew that we can care for those patients. We knew that we can treat those patients. We knew that um, we can do research very well, but what we did not know is, are we able to logistically start such a, a, a huge task? And I would say for the last two years, we've been wildly successful beyond belief and we're able to you know fulfill our uh, the needs of our patients and in in some cases exceed exceed those expectations
1: well i i'm really glad you guys took that leap of faith i mean your center is is very much the epicenter of, of limb salvage and you know we we appreciate you know their your advancement of the field is it a multidisciplinary practice or is it all cardiology
0: um great question so we when we started we really wanted to uh, create a multidisciplinary team. And we wanted to have skilled operators in the endo- endovascular field. We wanted to have skilled operators, surgeons, vascular surgeons to provide the uh, surgery for both patients if needed. We also wanted to provide the comprehensive cardiovascular care. So we have non-invasive cardiologists that tackle some of the non-invasive issues and medical therapy issues and the diet and lifestyle management for a lot of our patients, and I would say that w- we've been we've been able to initiate the building blocks, and I think that's the way of the future, Sabina, because quite frankly, you and I, when we talk about critical limb ischemia, you and I have a lot more in common, even though I'm a cardiologist and and, and you are a radiologist, we have a lot more in common when it comes to treatment of patients with critical limb ischemia. We both speak the same language. And what's interesting to me is uh, the, I'm realizing more and more that Uh, these lines between specialties, surgery, radiology, cardiology, are becoming more blurred, we're becoming more unified when it comes to the treatment of critical limb ischemia.
1: Yeah. I mean, really, that goes to a point where we're going to talk about today, which is where all the fields meld into one, as far as DVA and deep venous arterialization. I mean, uh, it's it's one of the more obscure but cutting edge therapies for patients uh, suffering from chronic limb ischemia, so uh, I'd love to hear what you think about it. What, what is deep venous arterialization? Yeah, that's a good question.
0: So uh, the concept of deep vein arterialization is, is, uh, is actually a, 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 not a new concept. And our surgical colleagues in the 60s and the 70s attempted to perform this surgically via open surgery by diverting arterial tibial flow either from a superficial femoral artery or the popliteal artery Uh, or even the tibial artery for that matter, to one of the tibial veins. And the idea was to create an outflow for the arterial flow within the venous system, uh, thus oxygenating that venous circulation and increasing O2 saturation within the venous circulation with the hopes of A, uh, maintaining patency of the bypass surgery, and B, improving oxygenation to the point of limb salvage or wound healing when it comes to to those patients. I'll fast forward to the current day and age. As you know, Sabine, CLI patients are medically speaking, they're they're frail patients, they're, they're sick patients, they have a lot of comorbidities, they have a lot of issues that might prohibit undergoing a major vascular surgery. And that's why overall we see a huge surge in endovascular therapy, regardless of the discipline, you know, vascular surgery, cardiology or radiology, you have a huge surge of endovascular therapy. So the idea of deep vein arterialization or percutaneous endovascular deep vein art- uh, arterialization kind of uh, presented itself again uh, through a couple of uh, small trials in really trying to address a need within, within the sick population.
1: And then, I mean, you're, you're connecting the artery to the vein, but then how, isn't the vein bringing all the blood to the heart? So how, how is it actually bringing it to the, to the area of limb loss or tissue loss? G- great question. So one of the, one of the things that I, I try to explain
0: to the patients, the idea is to divert the blood flow, at least percutaneously, what we do right now, um, outside the premises of any randomized trial is connect one of the tibial arteries to one of the tibial veins. Preferably, in, in, in most cases, it, it tends to be the posterior tibial artery. The, about 10 to 15% of the cases, it tends to be the anterior tibial artery. And then tibial vein, but in, in most circumstances we try to connect the posterior tibial artery to the posterior tibial vein. And what I tell my patients is, remember, you know, at the end of the day, each artery typically is surrounded by two tibial veins. And I tell the patients that uh, which is which, which I always I always enjoy the, the look on their face when I say, well, you know, just below the knee we have about three miles of veins, superficial and deep venous uh, veins, and they look at you that this in disbelief. By, by one of the major concerns for some of us patients like well if you divert the blood flow from one of the arteries into one of the veins how does the rest of the blood go back to my heart and my answer is there's a lot uh, more veins that are able to fulfill that obligation now by diverting the blood flow from one of the tibial arteries into one of the tibial veins a few things have to happen but um, to a 30,000 foot view would be essentially uh, you have to work on neutralizing the, the veins the veins or the uh, venous valves within the tibial veins, thus allowing the blood to flow in an integrated fashion from the tibial
1: artery into the tibial vein
0: into the venous circulation within the foot itself.
1: And how long does it take you know, to see results from the procedure? Uh, are they instant or, or does it take a while? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So, you, you know, uh, cardiologists,
0: we uh, consider this a good thing or a bad thing. You know, we're accustomed to trials that involves thousands and thousands of patients, uh, especially when it comes to medical therapy. But when it comes to deep vein arterialization, you know, the, the numbers are not that big. The number of cases are not that big. And what we're trying to do is collectively try to combine the experience of some of our operators around the country I would I would like to say I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I tend to think it's a good thing. You know, our center performs some of the highest numbers of deep vein arterializations within the country. On average, we perform anywhere from three to four procedures a month, which is a, a relatively high number uh, considering that uh, Promise One trial include only ten patients. Yeah. So so anecdotally, and I'm the first one to say that our ex, in in our experience, and I, and we can speak a little bit more about when can you utilize deep vein arterialization and and where are the limitations of the technology and which patients, in my opinion, would not qualify for deep vein arterialization. But generally speaking, when I do it, I I involve the podiatrist or the wound care specialist or the surgeon for that matter. And we prefer to delay the surgery and delay any wound debridement, delay any major amputation or uh, what I mean by that, transplant transplant amputation for at least a period of um, maybe six weeks, preferably eight weeks. And uh, in my opinion, that period of time will allow for what I like to describe as arterialization of the venous system, thus increasing the O2 saturation within the venous system, decreasing, uh, allowing for O2 um, or oxygen to have better permeability to the tissue, thus promoting wound healing. We found that if you do it earlier than that, the results tend to be less favorable, simply because you're dealing with edema, which is the enemy of wound healing when it comes to these to these to these plantar wounds, and also not enough oxygenation. I believe that's my theory. I believe not enough oxygenation within the tissue itself.
1: And so, so, who are you know these candidates? Who who are the best candidates? Who do you select to get this procedure? Uh, great question. So. Typically, uh, we have our own protocol
0: when it comes to deep vein arterialization. So we tend to, these patients tend to be referred to us or we see them with our own practice. So our protocol dictates that the, our physicians who are high volume CLI operators, by high volume, I mean they're, they're performing uh, well over 100 procedures, 50 to 100 procedures a month uh, with critical limb ischemia. And they have to attempt traditional endovascular arterial revascularization. And typically, those patients tend to have tibial, particularly distal tibial disease involving the plantar circulation itself. And what's interesting is you know you notice that the, the infra-anguinal region, the superficial femoral artery, popliteal artery tend to be somewhat spared from atherosclerotic disease. Even the proximal tibial vessels tend to be spared from, from atherosclerotic disease until you reach to the distal tibial vessels, ankle area, and particularly the plantar circulation, where you see a complete um, lack of circulation, what was typically described as a desert foot. I, we like to refer to it as end-stage plantar disease. So basically angiographically, you will place a catheter within the popliteal artery and we, you will, will do selective angiography. And uh, in five to eight seconds, you are barely seeing any collateral blood flow, especially, especially below the ankle area. So when you see that angiographically, you're not able to see any plantar reconstitution, either via the, the posterior circulation, lateral and medial plantar arteries, or the Dorsalis cells, artery. So that's, that's, uh, that's an angiographic assessment. You know, in our, in our centers, we, we move to another assessment, which is an ultrasound assessment. Now the traditional ultrasonography for, for peripheral vascular disease, depending on, depending on the center that you're working in, traditionally the ultrasonographers don't necessarily scan the digital branches of the plantar circulation. It really depends on which center you're in and the experience of uh, the ultrasonographers and what's requested of them by the physician. However, you know, we have a particular protocol where we actually scan the plantar circulation. We actually look at the pedal vessels, the lateral plantar, medial plantar, the archery artery. The term of white stop sign, Sabine, I know you're familiar with it because I have always refer to it in my presentations and in our publications. And I just, if you don't mind, I'm gonna explain it to the audience a little bit. The term white stop sign refers to complete opacification of these plantar vessels when you evaluate them on ultrasound. So you're really unable to discern the multiple layers of these tibial vessels. Uh, and you see a lot of acoustic shadowing when you're looking at the vessel on the ultrasound. And for lack of a better term, we've actually published a paper where we evaluated these vessels, including the wide stop sign. We, we published a review article that looked at the pathology of these vessels. And, um, you actually see bone neogenesis within these vessels It's complete the structures of all the layers within the vessel, uh, itself. So you are unable to reconstruct the vessel via traditional endovascular approach. You are unable even to bypass this vessel in a in an approach because there's there's no no hibernating lumen that you can saw the vessel to.
1: It's like a brick wall, basically. It just it's a white stop sign for sure. How often are you scanning these vessels in the plantar circulation when it's a desert foot, uh, but you don't see a white stop sign?
0: So 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 to piggyback on on the on the first question. You know, that's why we, we spent a lot of time trying to attempt this traditional endovascular approach. So if we, don't see, if we don't see white stop sign, if we are able to do selective angiography and we realize that there is hibernating plantar circulation or their cells artery circulation, then the patient is not at a stage where I would describe them as end-stage plantar disease. But if we do that and, and we see that it's truly that, it's truly it's end-stage plantar disease, then, then we make a decision of, okay, we have to prepare the patient for deep pain arterialization. And I would say that within our patient cohort, and I'm, I'm gonna say that it's, it's, it's a, it's a biased sample because we're a referral center and uh, 93% of the patients that we treat are critical limb ischemia patients. I would say on, on average, it's about uh, between eight to 12% of our patients are end-stage plantar disease that we, we will consider performing deep vein arterialization on.
1: Yeah, I mean, you guys get the worst of the worst and, and, and able to really do some good work on them. So to 10 to enter 13% is quite high. You perform these procedures in a surgical center. Are, are most people doing in, in surgery centers or in hospitals or, or what kind of areas or expertise do they need?
0: Yeah, that, that is an excellent question, Sabine. And, uh, you know, a lot of our colleagues ask me that question. And my answer is typically surprising to a lot of them because I tend to tell people that I do the complex work within our CLI center and I do more of the straightforward work within the hospital. And I'll explain to you why. You know, at the end of the day, when you're treating CLI patients, you have to have a team. And the, and the team is, is you know, the physician who's, who's performed the procedure, but you also have your support staff you also have to have all the tools that are available at your disposal. And as you know, Sabine, some, some centers around the country are, which in my opinion are the minority, not the majority, have all of those tools available at their disposal. But the majority of, of hospitals around the country are, are limited in, in terms of what kind of, or what type of product they carry in, depending on variety of reasons. Uh, So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is the staff. So one of the things that we depend heavily on in performing these procedures is having an interventional ultrasonographer. So as you know, Sabine, within our center, our interventional team is composed of the physician. There's a scrub tech. And there's an interventional ultrasonographer that's with us in each and every case. From obtaining access to delivering therapy to closing the groin those interventional ultrasonographers are with us throughout the case. We don't call them to get access. We don't get them uh, between cases. They are part of a team and the imaging uh, equipment are there all the time. So um, that's something that it is not as far as I, I can tell. It is the exception to have in any of the centers around the country. In fact, a lot of physicians, you know, voice their frustration with their inability to Bring in ultrasound in this capacity to their angio suite. And, and thirdly, you know, the, the staff in the training of the staff in setting up for those patients. So to just simply place a patient in a way where you can obtain integrated access and pedal venous access and connect the artery and the vein and place a covered stent and evaluate those patients. That requires a certain level of expertise and preparedness on, on your staff behalf. So it's, it's not enough that you as a physician can perform the procedure. Your staff has to be well, facile and educated about what you are doing with those patients.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm one of those physicians that is very envious of having that, that dedicated vascular technologist in there. So, you know, if you want to send anyone to California to have one, (laughs) that's, you know,
0: Completely well,
1: welcome to you know. Which we try to hide mean, it, Sabine,
0: because you guys have awful yeah. weather, so I'm not going to give them the option.
1: But absolutely. But,
0: but you know, I, I I and I say that to the patients too, and I say you know because of the complexity and the nature of a procedure, we prefer to do it within within our center because we have all the equipment that we need to to do it there. Which which seems to be a bit surprising to some of our colleagues when we say we actually do it in our center. We don't do it in the hospital. But, it, but hopefully, after I explain to you why, you know, it would make sense to a lot of our colleagues, wh- why do we do it in, in, in these centers?
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. I mean, you guys are specialized and have all the equipment and the team that's ready to do that. I mean, these, these cases are more than just the technical aspect. Everyone has to be passionate and, and dedicated. Otherwise, you have people who are just unhappy and, and not totally in it. You know, I, I kind of wanted to talk about the technique, and I think a lot of our listeners are, are are really excited to know how you do it. I mean, I when I did my first one, I don't know if you remember a couple years back, I think I texted you maybe a hundred times or so to to figure out how you do it. I mean, it, it's a very kind of out of concept, out of, out of the box thinking about how to do this. So, you know, I'm going to kind of ask you a couple of the big points for technique of how you create it. You know, and, and so for one thing is is where where do you like to create the fistula of of the a DVA? What what target is your ideal target and why? Yeah, so
0: so that's a great question, Sabina. And by the way, I want to you, you 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 earned the right to brag about this because Dr. Don has has performed the uh, I believe the first bilateral lower extremity AV reversal, and the patient did very well. So. I'm going to, I'm going to, I got to give you credit here. And I think, I think you should be very proud. You should be very proud of that. You know, remember every patient that get, gets a deep vein arterialization procedure and it's successful, that patient had more than 90% chance of losing their limb and having a major amputation. So just for the listeners, the stakes are extremely high for those patients in, in, and if you're listening to this and you're thinking, gosh, this is so extreme to go. To such lengths to save the limb, well, these patients have have no options, and they're not necessarily elderly patients. They're not necessarily you know you know in their eighties and their nineties. A lot of them are younger patients, actually. I'm, I'm assuming Sabine, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But yeah. going back to your question in terms of the technical aspects, which which a lot of physicians are interested in, so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about our natural evolution. So initially, the trial was referring to reverse those patients from the proximal tibial vessels. And we've evolved, and I find that some of these proximal tibial vessels are relatively spared from atherosclerotic disease, as I was describing earlier. So I don't feel as strongly in terms of performing the connection, if I may say, between the artery and the vein. Now, initially, when we first started the tool, the tool for the lymph flow trial, I think phase two trials going on right now, they have a proprietary tent that they utilize and they have a proprietary system to connect the artery and the vein. This, this system is not commercially available. So a lot of talented physicians around the world, uh, their solution to that is by using some of the equipment that we have. So what we like to do uh, is essentially access the carotid artery in an integrated fashion cross all the way to the distal uh, posterior tibial artery. And I'm just going to give an example of an reversal between the posterior tibial artery and the posterior tibial vein. And in the beginning, we used to access the posterior tibial vein or one of the posterior tibial veins around the ankle level. Currently, we've actually evolved to accessing one of the plantar veins within the midfoot, if, if it's available, if it's feasible. And the reasons for that is to bypass the valve around the ankle area that tends to be very challenging to deal with and tackle. Now, once you have access to the posterior tibial vein and access to the posterior tibial artery in the example that I'm describing, um, you will have a wire in the posterior tibial artery and then you will have a wire in the posterior tibial vein. In the beginning, we used to use a re-entry device such as the Outback device or an ultrasound-mediated device such as the Pioneer device. You know, the Outback is from Cordis, Pioneer is uh, from Philips. It has an ultrasound on it. And we will inflate a balloon within the posterior tibial vein. We generally usually pick a 4.0 or a 5.0 by 120, 150-millimeter length balloon, a little bit on the longer side. And if you use if you use the Outback device, you will aim it toward puncturing the balloon within the vein. And we have had uh, multiple presentations in the Amputation Prevention Symposium in terms of how to perform A B reversal. And uh, one of the platforms that we utilize, all of us, the CLI fighters, Sabine is one of them, is Twitter. So for the audience that's listening to us, I hope you follow Sabine and some of the CLI fighters, including myself, because we post a lot of these videos and you're able to see it live. Uh, but nonetheless, you aim toward puncturing the, the balloon within the posterior tibial vein and thus allowing yourself to advance the wire from the posterior tibial artery through the needle into the posterior tibial vein. So now you have wire that ran from the artery into the vein. When we first started doing this, Sabine, and, and I know you know what I'm talking about, You know, you, you, the first thing you expect as a physician that when you take an angiogram, you're going to see extravasation of contrast from the artery Mm -hmm. vein, and what was surprising to a lot of us even after you balloon the connection between the artery and the vein you see the contrast basically going from the artery into the venous system without any extravasation you know sort of what we were talking about and and I talked to a lot of our surgical colleagues about this and it has I believe it has to do with the fact that the arteries and the veins are within this fascicle Uh, that does not allow for extravasation to have and and for the blood to go to the areas of less resistance, which is going to be the venous system. So now after you establish the connection between uh, the artery and the vein, remember you have a sheath, uh, or we prefer to place a sheath within the venous system also. We used to remove the sheath and start to work from there. And again, we evolved from that. We actually maintain the sheath within the venous system. And we, we perform sequential balloon angioplasty of the arteriotomy site or the AV fistula site between the artery and the vein, 2.5, 3.5, almost 4.0 balloon slowly. And and I would say that we actually uh, prefer to perform atherectomy within the arterial side of the tibial artery because that artery needs to be stretched at least to about 3.5, 4 millimeters, which is a concept that's, a lot of physicians might not be comfortable with, but eventually you're going to need to do that depending, depending on what you end up placing for the patient. I want to go back and talk about a little bit about how you can connect the, the, create the connection between the artery and the vein. So we used to use the Outback device, we used to use the Pioneer device. And now what we started doing, and that goes back to the team that you have, our interventional ultrasonographers are, are, are so well-trained that we can actually place a balloon within the posterior tibial artery and place a balloon within the posterior tibial vein and visualize them under ultrasound and under extravascular ultrasound, puncture the vein into the artery or the artery into the vein and create a connection that way without the use of a re-entry device. So thus you're saving yourself a step in terms of connecting the artery and the vein for, for both patients. So... And I've showed multiple examples of that on, uh, on on my Twitter feed. And uh, I know some of the CLI fighters have some really nice examples of connecting the arc and the veins. And Sabine, our interventional radiology colleagues, actually, you guys are the pioneers in terms of, you know, using a snare and, and capturing the snare percutaneously or under fluoroscopy. So, you know, I'm not going to take credit for that. I, if, if anything, the idea came to me from from watching some of those videos. But after after you create the the inline wire between the artery into the vein and the and we we try to make sure that the we try to make sure that the wire is still within the venous sheath. So this way we're creating a railing system. And after you perform atherectomy of the tibial artery and sequential balloon angioplasty, this is a concept that uh, depending on what you do uh, in your practice, you gotta start stretching the the vein and we try to stretch it at least up to five millimeters. The ankle area, if you access the, the, the plantar veins within the foot, then at least you're bypassing this very stubborn and challenging vein within around the ankle area. It, it makes it very difficult, very tough to, to, to cross it. So if you're accessing within the midfoot, then, then you bypass all of those valves and you can aggressively start stretching those valves. And uh, when I say aggressively, I, I'm talking about using 18 to 20 atmospheres. You can use some specialty balloons such as cutting balloons or chocolate balloon or angiosculpt. But I find that, you know, using a, a couple of 4 balloons at high inflation pressures tend to do the trick. It's just, uh, it's just a little bit uncomfortable to inflate a balloon at, at 20 atmospheres, at 22 atmospheres. The final step, which is delivering a covered stent. We opt to use a self-expanding Viobond covered stent from the distal tibial vein, and we've evolved. Initially, we used to place the covered stent only within the venous system and put a drug-eluting stent between the artery and the vein. But I found that actually, if I connect the artery and the vein with the covered stent, I can be a lot more aggressive in ballooning that connection between the artery and the vein. So we will place a 5-O viabond covered stent from a distal posterior tibial vein to the mid-posterior posterior tibial artery and post-dilated with a 5-o balloon and proximally at the proximal edge of the biobond post dilated with a 4-O balloon. We've we've attempted in the past placing a 4.5 supera stent within the plantar circulation, and the results were less than favorable. There was a lot of uh, instant stent re-stenosis for both patients. So we tend to end the stent around the ankle uh, area and for now anecdotally it seems that that's working favorably however you still have to ideally recreate the venous beetle loop meaning the wire crossing from the plantar circulation to their cells pedis artery or of a great saphenous vein and ballooning that with a 3.5 or a 4.0 balloon within the foot itself so again these are 4.0 balloons within the venous circulation within the plantar circulation itself
1: you know that, that's an important part that the loop is important and, and creating the loop and and uh, how do you how do you deal with the valves there? Do you do you destroy them with the balloons too? Yes. So so we currently don't have
0: uh, there is a scoring device that's currently not available commercially for us to destroy these uh, these uh, these valves within the veins. So we tend to use uh, uh, aggressive ballooning. And that tends tends to work. Um, you know, it's, it's it's somewhat challenging, but that tends to work when when it comes. It's just a physician has to be comfortable with high inflation pressures for a lot of those for a lot of those valves.
1: And uh, and what about perforators? Do you coil those perforators uh, to to force it into the into the forefoot, or do you leave those alone now? Yeah, that's a that's an
0: excellent question too. So again, we evolved. You know, initially we used to think that we need to coil some of those branches and. And what I found out that uh, what we actually do, Sabine, is we actually ablate to the small saphenous vein and the great saphenous vein, but we don't coil. Cool. We don't coil, nice. we don't, we don't coil the, the branches within the foot. We found that that tends to prolong the procedure, and I really don't, that we, we don't get that much more benefit uh, from what we're doing.
1: Great. And I think that ablation, that's, that's a neat trick. I, I, it's, uh, that's a, a good way to force flow as well. Yeah. Now, you you said you, you prefer the distal PT. I mean, you, you've done distal AT, any like tibial perineal trunk or, or SFA pop, or is that just too high?
0: You know, I I the perineal system is certainly doable. But at the end of the day, as you know, we're trying to get flow to the foot itself. Unless you have an anomalous perineal artery connecting with the plantar circulation, it does not work. And I'll tell you uh, what else we've been doing. Uh, late, lately, which you, you always think that you've reached the pinnacle of what we can do within this plantar circulation. But but now in some instances, we're able to get to the distal tibial vessels, either the AT or the PT and using a CTO wire around that level crossed into the venous circulation around the ankle lobe. using a CTO wire. And what we've done with those patients, Sabine, is we've actually aggressively ballooned the AV fistula location. So thus we've done AV reversal within the foot itself. Or you know, sometimes you are treating with your cells, be this artery over lateral plantar artery, and there's an occlusion there. There's an obliteration of the vessel. And then you can attempt to cross to the from the artery to the vein and aggressively perform balloon anoplasty. And those fistulas, we we have about 10 patients in our practice. You know, those are beyond the, the DVA patients. They're all even more challenging. So we've been able to perform an AV fistula and an AV reversal within the foot itself, not even at the tibial vessels. But to answer your question, that's, no, we don't we don't do it in the SFA of the or the TPT trunk. We try to to stick to the PT and the AT. Yeah,
1: that's quite next level. Below ankle uh, DVA, that that's that's pretty sweet. <laughs> I like that fatty. What do you, you know, for your follow up, I, I, we talked about post operative course and swelling and, and trying to prevent surgery for six weeks. You know, you mentioned edema and swelling is, is, is something you see most often. What about your follow up plan? I mean, are you, are you doing routine imaging? Are you doing routine angios? Or are you just managing them clinically? So, great question. So, I would tell you that we follow them
0: based on our PV follow up protocol, which, which means we see them in two weeks. We evaluate them in our office. We make sure that they're doing okay from a swelling and edema. About, I would say 30 to 40% of patients have significant swelling. Not all patients actually have significant swelling. And I would say about 30 to 40% of patients have a lot of pain. You will get uh, also 30 to 40% of patients that will not have swelling, will not have pain, which was very interesting. And then at 30 days, we perform our RTA duplex. So we're following our P V protocol. And I will tell you that about 40 to 50% of the patients that we've performed DVA on, they tend to re-occlude within a year and you reopen them and they heal. So the rate of re-intervention for those patients is in the, in, in, in our, in our case series in the 40% range. And the modality of failure, interestingly, is, is usually recoil within the venous circulation at the foot level itself. And in some instances, it's uh, a recoil within the proximal tibial vessels. But the majority of, of the failure modalities have been at the distal venous connection between the covered stent and the foot.
1: Yeah. I found it pretty amazing at at AMP when you showed, you know, cases where even when the arterialization, when the fistula or, or stents had occluded, the patient still had oxygenated flow to their foot. And, and then this was, this was a pretty remarkable concept and it shows how, how amazing our bodies are. You see this often?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, 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 it's puzzling. You know, Sabine, got me thinking that with these patients, maybe all we need is to get this temporary improvement in oxygenation levels, uh, allowing them to meet the demands or the extra demands of the body for wound healing. And even if the AV official over reversal occludes, we've helped them get over the hump or the significant demand to achieve wound healing. And, yeah. and, you know, we don't have a lot of wins with CLI patients, but those were one of the pleasant discoveries that we've noticed in, in our practice. You know, there's yeah. nothing there is nothing sweeter than, than seeing a patient walking in or, you know, one of the early AV reversals that we performed was on a patient that had a major amputation in one leg. And by the time they got to us, we were, we were you know, we had to reverse the, the, the left leg and they have a prosthesis and they walk into, into your office and it was so much pride on their face that, that you want to, you know, it makes it worth it because we've all been in these situations. You have been, I have been where you're working until midnight or 10 o'clock and you're really putting a good fight to help the patient. In it's, it's just, you just, you can't win them all, but I, I strongly believe that this technology, uh, we're just in the early phases of understanding the, the potential for performing it. I'm sure we're going to, you know, six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, we're going to be discussing how we're refining this technology. And I must add that a lot of, a lot of what we don't know with DVA revolves around wound care, how to address wound care. When should we perform the AV reversal? So for example, you know, I, I'm sure you're going to ask me this question. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to address it from now, which patients that I would actually not perform deep vein arterialization on, because a lot of physicians ask that, you know, the, the problem is some of these patients are so far gone. There's so much tissue loss that even if you perform the, D, the DVA and you're technically successful, the damage is so extensive to the tissue that no matter what you do that's not going to happen and that's not a surprise to a lot of people. But I'm gonna but I'm gonna bring another scenario into light because some of our listeners uh, they should keep that in mind when they're evaluating those patients. I've had patients where you actually if they're having wounds and rest pain at the same time Sabine that's that's an interesting combination in the sense that if they have end-stage plantar disease they're having rest pain and they have active wounds. When you scan those patients under ultrasound, you see significant subcutaneous edema, and you see that the venous system itself is collapsed, or thrombosed, for lack of a better term. And those patients do not benefit from DVA, and I I say that from experience. So, in terms of selection criteria for those patients, you know, those those are technically challenging cases, and right now I don't perform DVA on those patients. If they're having rest pain, and and they have significant tissue loss and I'm examining them doing our extravascular ultrasound evaluation before the procedure, and you really don't see adequate venous structures, then you should not be performing DVA on those patients.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point and, and a good teaching point. You know, I mean, not everyone, you know, who's who's end-stage plantar disease can can be a candidate. And, you know, thank you for sharing that tidbit. You know, for those, you know, this is obviously a procedure that you know, someone who is not experienced in, in critical limb ischemia and, and doing advanced PVD therapies should be doing, but someone who is, you know, pretty experienced and wants to learn, how, how would they go about trying to learn these concepts? What are some things that some educational materials or conferences you recommend for for our listeners to go to? Yeah, good question, Sabina. And, and I would tell you that, you know, we
0: we We're getting a lot of requests from physicians that would like to learn about the d v a and learn about the procedure uh just a uh, you know a disclaimer I, I have to remind all of our listeners that uh, you know this is really early technology uh we really don't understand uh, uh, all the nuances of it. We're trying to i'm personally trying to uh create uh, some sort of webinar every quarterly webinar where we can actually broadcast some of these AV reversal cases to, to some of our audience and address some of those questions. Uh, so that's one venue that, that did not happen yet. So, but one of the, but the other venues, you know, the Amputation Prevention Symposium or AMP, this year was virtual. We dedicated a significant amount of time to talk about end-stage plantar disease and end-stage CLI patients. And we spoke quite a bit about deep vein arterialization for those patients. And, and finally, Sabine, you and I are part of this important group called CLI Fighters. We are um, a committee of uh, Global Society of Critical Limb Ischemia. So if you're a physician that's passionate about this, regardless of your discipline, I strongly advise you to join the CLI Global Society. It's a multidisciplinary group of physicians that really a patient and a physician advocate to empower us CLI operators and CLI fighters that are trying to think and find ways to treat some of these complex and challenging uh, cases for patients.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think having resources like how I had you as a resource to, to do my first couple and and I think, you know, all of the CLI fighters out there are happy to help. So for any of our listeners who need anything, I think reaching out, you, you guys, you and Jihad have been a great resource and We're very much looking forward to what more you can advance this field because you guys are doing great, great stuff. So thank you so much for being a part of today's uh, podcast. I mean, we could keep on talking about this, but maybe we'll go into a little bit more detail next time too. So thank you, Fatty.
0: Thank you, Sabine. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your uh, podcast and, and have the opportunity to speak to a lot of your listeners. So I really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Fatty.
0: Take care.